So as we read from the Bible in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, it says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Lisa and I went down to the cities for our anniversary. It was our 34th wedding anniversary. So we went down to the Chanhassen Dinner Theater and saw the play Newsies. And we spent some time shopping. And, and we stepped into a Barnes & Noble and looked around in there. And you know what really stood out to me? Well, exactly what should stand out to you in the bookstore is all the books. It's an amazing amount of books in those places. All different kinds of books. There's books on history and philosophy and science and medicine. And there's in every kind of fiction you can imagine, from romance to horror. And there's books on parenting and there's children's books and books on aging and books. There's just books on everything that you can imagine. Solomon said of the writing of books, there is no end. And I would have to say he is absolutely right. But you know what? Out of all of those books and out of all the books written throughout time, there is no book like the book that we opened before us this morning. It's an amazing book. It's a book that was written by over 40 different authors. It starts with our creation and where did we come from. It ends with where we're going to and everything in between. It just connects and makes sense and it's phenomenal that way. But yet as 40 different authors, over 1,500 years, multiple generations, talk about a generation gap. It was written in three different languages and I don't mean translated in three different languages. It's been translated in many, many languages. But the original language languages that it was written in covered three different languages. It was written on three different continents. It was written by everything from kings to shepherds to fishermen to doctors, just a wide variety of people. It's actually a a containing of 66 different books. So as we come to this passage in chapter 4, he brings up this word of God. And that's what we want to consider as we look at it here this morning as we come to this passage of Hebrews is we want to consider the Word of God. Now, there's two characteristics that I want to point out to us from within the passage about the Word of God. The first characteristic is that it is inspired. It is the inspired Word of God. And to do that, we look at mostly the general context around it. If we're to look at uh, Hebrews in chapter 3 and verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... And then he quotes this passage out of Psalm 95. Now, we know that King David wrote Psalm 95. But it's about to quote a passage from Psalm 95. But it doesn't say, as David wrote, when the author writes in the book of Hebrews. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. So he recognizes that even though David put the pen to paper, so to speak, it's the Holy Spirit that was saying it. And so it's not actually the words of David. It's actually the Word of God. God inspired David to write this down or to say this for us. We also saw the same thing when we got up to chapter 4 and verse 8. Because notice it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now this is referring actually to the same passage. So the point is, when the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 95, he says, he doesn't say, look, listen to the words of David. He said, listen to what the Holy Spirit says. And then he turns around and says, God said this. If this was the case over here, then God would not have said this. He was recognizing that those were actually the words of God, not just the words of David. So we see from within the passage that this word of God that he's talking about that's sharper than a two-edged sword, that it is the inspired word of God. 
Well, we see that throughout the Bible. In fact, we see it even contained in the promise of Jesus. Jesus, earlier in his ministry, said that heaven and earth would disappear, but that the word of God would not disappear to the very, put it in our language, crossing of a T and dotting of an I, that the word of God would remain firm. Well, then, as he sat down with his disciples, right at the end of his ministry, right before going to the cross, He promised them that as He was leaving them, the Holy Spirit would come. He promised them that when the Spirit would come, in John chapter 14, says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he continues talking to him. It's still in the same conversation. When we get to chapter 16 of the same book, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you things that are to come. I look at that promise, and what does Jesus promise to those early disciples, those apostles? He's promised them that the Holy Spirit is going to come, and He's going to guide them. And as He guides them, this is what He's going to reveal to them. First of all, He says, He's going to bring to your remembrance all the things that I've taught you. Well, when we open the New Testament of our Bible, the first thing that we find is the Gospels, which is the life and the actions and the teachings of Jesus Christ. That is all the things that the Holy Spirit brought to their remembrance. He gave that to us in the Gospels. It says that He was going to guide them into all truth. We see within the New Testament, we see the Apostles as the foundation of the church, guiding the church into more truth as the Holy Spirit would reveal it to them. And we find that in the epistles, which is the letters of Paul and the letter of James and the letters of Peter. In the, in the epistles, we have God guiding His church into all truth. And then lastly, it says in this passage, and I will show you things to come. Well, that's the book of Revelations and parts of the book of, uh, books of Thessalonians. And, and so He guides us even in our understanding of future things. He promised them that as He was leaving, the Holy Spirit would come and that the Holy Spirit would give them these things. The remembrance of the things He said, the guidance into all truth, and the showing them of things to come. And that really is a synopsis of our New Testament or a summary of our New Testament. Even though the the Apostle Paul would write these things down, we are looking at the product of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, these words actually being the words of God. In fact, the Apostle Paul when he looked at the Thessalonian church, he commended them for recognizing that. And when he wrote his first letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it, re- what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So as the Apostle Paul wrote his letters and he spent time teaching them, he said these people recognized that these are not just human teachings. These were the actual words of God. The New Testament testifies to that in multiple places. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, it says all Scripture is actually breathed out by God. It's breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. We also see the same in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love that, that kind of that picture it gives you there. It says, As people were writing the Bible, and, and there were people involved in writing the Bible, over 40 of them, as we mentioned. But as they're writing it, God says they were, they were superintended. They were, they were carried along so that the things that they're putting down on the page are not 
They're not theirs. They're not their ideas. They're not their words. They're God's Word. Well, in Second Peter, he talks about how the Word of God was made. It was made by the Holy Spirit carrying these people along as they wrote down the Word of God for us. In First Peter, we get to see an example of that in their lives. In First Peter, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now notice, first of all, within the passage, we see that the Holy Spirit is mentioned twice within the passage, that the Holy Spirit that was within them is who was signifying or indicating the times and the seasons that these different things would happen that the prophets were foretelling. And then he also points then into their day that the good news was preached as these things were being proclaimed and taught among them, that that also was coming as a result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now the part that I love to see woven through there is that these prophets, when they wrote out their prophecies, it says that they then searched them. In other words, they studied their own writings. Isaiah, studying the book of Isaiah. Can you imagine that? Jeremiah, studying the book of Jeremiah. Why? If they wrote it, I've written lots of things. I never study my own writings. I don't know why, because I knew what I meant when I said it. I already know that. These guys studied their own writings, and the reason is because it wasn't their writing. They would write something down, and they're like, what is this talking about? When is this going to happen? What does this indicate? Because it's not their ideas. It's not... Their words. And so we see very consistently testified through the Bible that this is the Word of God. It's inspired. You know, if you look back into the, just the Old Testament, if you look in the Old Testament and just type in a little phrase. In fact, uh, a, good, a good resource to be able to use to do that kind of thing is BibleGateway.com. I highly recommend it. You can put in the translation that you're using. Mine's always set. When I pull it up, it's one of my favorite tabs. Pull it up. It's always set on the ESB. And I type in the Word of the Lord. You know, Word of the Lord, that, that one little phrase, Word of the Lord comes up 260 times in the Old Testament. I think it's, what, 58 times in the book of Jeremiah alone, 30 times in the book of Ezekiel. And most of the references are something like this. The Word of the Lord came to Moses. The Word of the Lord that came to Hosea. The Word of the Lord that came to Micah. The Word of the Lord that came to Zechariah. The Word of the Lord that... The whole point is... All through the Old Testament, it's all over the place. It's constantly pointing out the fact that, look, this is the Word of the Lord. This isn't the Word of Jeremiah. This is the Word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. This isn't the Word of Ezekiel. It's the Word of the Lord that came to Ezekiel. It constantly testifies that this is the Word of God. And so we see firmly, just as we see in our passage here today, that these things, though spoken by David or written down by David, they were said by the Holy Spirit. No matter where you quote from within the Bible, this is the Word of God. It's inspired. Well, not only is it inspired, but we look within the passage, or the main point of this whole uh, couple of verses that he points to, is that it is powerful. That's really the, the primary point that he's making, that this Word of God, which is inspired by him, is powerful in our lives. He compares it to a two-edged sword. He says, sharper than a two-edged sword. 
And we're not going to spend a lot of time in it because we went through it last week a little bit. But, but he talks about a piercing down into the very core of our being, breaking through joints and marrow and, 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 and piercing into our, our innermost being, a division of soul and spirit. And I don't even think he's saying that there is a difference between soul and spirit. I think as we look at the immaterial part of man, that we're, we're basically two parts, I think. Uh, that we're, we're physical and we're Spiritual. We have a, the word spirit and soul are often used interchangeably throughout the Bible. And so I don't, I don't think he's saying, well, there's a, you can separate the soul from the spirit. I don't think that's the point he's making. I think the point that he's making is that he pierces right down into your soul, into your spirit, into your core of your being, into the very depths of your hearts. And that's the ability that the Word of God has within our life. It is powerful within us. Isaiah chapter 55, God makes a statement about His Word. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and give seed, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my Word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it, will sh- it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So you see, God declares that His Word is powerful. And in our passage, the example that He gives of that is that that flashing, sharp, two-edged sword that has these tremendous abilities in our lives. The first way that we see that it is powerful is in the way that it saves. It has a saving power to it. That's really the purpose for writing this. He's warning these people that are looking at turning their back on Christ, and He's saying, you can't do that. You've got to remain faithful. You've got to demonstrate your faith by your faithfulness. He's calling them to question their salvation at this time and to look within their heart. Allow that Word of God to pierce down into their heart and see if they're genuine in their faith or not. Or whether they need to come to Christ to begin with. You know, the Bible declares in other places too that, that the saving power of the Word of God when the Apostle Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy in chapter 3, in fact, it's the verse right before the two that we've already looked at about the Word of God being God-breathed. He would tell Timothy, he says, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Word of God, he tells Timothy, was able to make you wise unto salvation. It's all that you needed, really, to, to do that saving work in your heart to get you to point where you believe on Jesus Christ and receive that salvation. Also in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, Peter would say, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. It sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? As we look at the passage here, it says in verse 12, So the Word of God is living and active. This is not a stagnant word. It's not a, it's not a dead word on the page. The Word of God is living. As we read it, those, those words sink into our heart. They pierce into our heart and they help us to grow to be more like Jesus Christ and they point out areas that need correction and it, and it encourages us and strengthens us and builds us up. There's a living activity that takes place inside of us as we're confronted with God's Word. And Peter acknowledged that. He says, look, we're born again. It's the same thing Jesus told Nicodemus. Remember back in John chapter 3? Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, we know that you're come from God because nobody can do the things that you're doing unless God's with him. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is confused. How does this happen? Jesus would go on to tell him he's going to be lifted up on the cross and everybody that believes in him would have eternal life. Peter tells us, looking at it from a little bit different perspective, 
that that happens through the Word of God. As we hear the Word of God about the Son of God, we put our faith in Him and our hearts are quickened, our hearts are made alive in Christ. And we come to that point of saving faith where we're born again. That happens through the Word of God. Romans 10 tells us that. right? The faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of God. As we look, consider this passage, it's not only that moment of salvation, but it's also the Bible's power helping us to live out that salvation. Because that's the, that's the part these guys are having trouble with. They've made a profession of faith in Christ. They've accepted Him as their Savior. In fact, they've even walked with Him for a while. But they're getting tired. And they're thinking about compromising. They're thinking about caving in. And He's telling them, look, this Word of God can pierce down into your hearts and soul. This You need to stay active in your in your faith, you need to stay real, committed in your relationship with Christ. So it's not just dealing with that point of bringing us to salvation, but fleshing out our salvation within the world as well. You know, it reminds me of a passage in Second Peter in chapter 1. I love this passage. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Simply put, means we've got everything that we need to live out the life of godliness before God. We have everything that we need. And it's not, it doesn't rest in our power. It rests in His power. It says His power has granted us everything that we need, everything that pertains to life and godliness. But then as you follow the flow of thought, you find out the very practical way that that comes into our life. Because then it says, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. We tap into that power source through the knowledge of God. But it doesn't stop there. Where do we get the knowledge of God? It says, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You see what he's saying? He's saying, we have everything that we need to live out this life of righteousness and godliness. It's not left to our own power, it's through God's. How do we get it? We get it through the knowledge of God. And where do we get that? Through the Word of God, His precious promises. By that, we participate in the divine nature and we have the power and the ability to overcome sin in our life and to live for God. That's why in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 14, he was writing to kind of different groups of people. He says, I write to you young men because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do you see that? Why are they strong? Because the Word of God abides in them. And that's why they overcome the evil one. They're getting their strength from the Word of God, and so they're able to overcome the evil one. It's awesome. James makes it very practical when he tells us in James chapter 1, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he is blessed in his doing. So James compares it to us looking in the mirror when we get up in the morning. He says, if you look in your mirror and then turn around and walk away without combing your hair, what good did it do you? He says, but it's the one that persists. Gets before the mirror, sees it, starts to make the changes, persists, stays at it, continues to look, continues to make the changes. He says, that's the one who experiences the value of the mirror. He's comparing that to the Word of God. He says, as we look into that perfect law of liberty, we look into the Word of God and we persist in it. We continue to look in it and, and line up our lives next to it and make the changes that need to be made and we grow in the ways that we need to grow. He says, that's where we're blessed. 
Romans chapter 12, I think of the same idea. It tells us not to be conformed to the things of this world, but to be transformed. We get our word metamorphosis from the Greek word. And it's a word that means a change from the inside out. He's saying we need to stop being conformed. That's changing from the outside in with pressures that are put on you from the outside. So we need to stop being conformed to the ways of the world through the outward pressure. He says we need to rather be transformed, changed from the inside out. And how does that happen? By the renewing of our mind, thinking God's thoughts. Now, if you think about this with me, you know, a lot of times we think, well, we're going to be free. We're going to make up our own decisions. Better be careful of that. That's what Eve did in the garden with the snake. She decided to take a look at the tree for herself. Aside from what God said. All of your thoughts are coming from one of two places. They're either coming from God or they're coming from the world. I don't see any more options. Unless you want to throw the devil in there. But we'll just lump him in with the world, okay? We're either going to think God's thoughts or we're going to think the thoughts of the world around us. If we just say, you know what, I'm not going to have a book tell me what to do. I'm just going to, I'm just going to evaluate things by what feels right for me, what looks right to me. Well, let me ask you something. Why do certain things look right to you? Why do certain things feel right to you? Is it not because of your background and your upbringing? Is it not because of the world that you live in? If you were born in a different generation and live in a different time, you might feel very different about some different things than you do today. It's because we get our thoughts and our ideas and our feelings and stuff from the impulses of the things that we experience in the world that is around us. We either get them from there or we get them from God. You see, that's what he's saying in Romans chapter 12. The world... There's pressures in the world to think certain ways, believe certain ways, do things certain ways, accept different things, reject other things. There's outward pressures in the world, and those will conform you. You will either be conformed by that or you'll be transformed, changed from the inside out by the Word of God as you spend time in His Word. And He's calling them to do the latter. I also think of Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5 through 5, in dealing with spiritual warfare. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of the divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We take every thought captive. He says we're in, we're in a spiritual warfare. We're in a battle. And the battle is for your soul. And the battle goes through your mind. And he says, you know the way we fight that battle? It's for winning the battle of the mind. We take every thought captive. This is a moment by moment thing. We take every thought captive and bring it into obedience to Christ. And through that we become transformed. Our mind is renewed. That is where we experience the power of God in our lives. That's why in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, take on the whole armor of God. The sword of the Spirit, that's our weapon. The sword of the Spirit. When ideas come into our minds, when ideas come to us from, from outside, from the world, and they don't line up with the Word of God, we need to reject those ideas. And the ones that do line up with the Word of God, we need to accept those ideas. But we need to allow the Word of God to have that saving work, that, that penetrating work in our lives. But not only do we see the Word of God being powerful in a saving way, we also see that it's powerful in a judging way. And we just touched the tip of the iceberg in this last week. That's really kind of the point that he's bringing them to here. He's bringing them to their moment of judgment. The time when they're going to stand before God. It talks about God's Word judging or, or exercising discernment. It is the Greek word for judging. It says that as it pierces down into the division of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow and it discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. That's why the point of the piercing Piercing, we talked uh, last week about it being open. We talked about them 
having the person by the neck, kind of eye to eye, face to face. There's no ducking, there's no bowing your head, there's no ducking out of it. Open. So there's a judging way that the Bible is exercised in our life. The Bible stands in judgment over us. You know, sometimes I talk to people about an issue or, a, or an event or something that's going on or uh, maybe a social issue, and I quote a passage from the Bible, and they say to me, you know, yeah, but I, just, I don't believe that. Well, you're kind of missing the point. The point is, you don't judge the Bible. The Bible judges you. You've got things mixed around. Not believing something that is true doesn't make it not true. It's still true, whether you believe it or not. You know, we recognize this in tangible things. At least sometimes we do. Today, anymore, I question some of the things that we question, even the science of things anymore. You know, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And I don't care what number you're feeling at the moment when you're in elementary school and you write down on there, it's going to get marked wrong by your teacher if it's wrong. It's just it's either true or it's not. So when people say about the Word of God, yeah, but I just don't believe that. Well, I'm sorry, but that doesn't make it any less true. And you're really missing the point. It's, right now, they're in the danger. They're standing in judgment on the Word of God. I'm judging that that is not true. And the whole point of this passage is the Word of God is what will stand in judgment on you. God's not going to become subject to your judgment. You will become subject to His. You're not going to make a big uh, difference in the, in the equation, but it will make an ultimate difference in your life if you go a different direction. Jesus pointed that out to the religious leaders of his day. He said to them in John chapter 12, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. The apostles also would point out to the crowd that they spoke to in Acts chapter 13. That Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. He's talking to the Jewish people because they'd always go into a city and they would go to the Jewish people first and then they would go to the Gentiles after the Jewish people rejected it. He says it was necessary that the Word of God to be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And so the Apostle Paul said, since you thrust the Word of God aside, you have judged yourself unworthy. It's not the Word of God that they thrust aside that was in danger of judgment. It was them that was in danger of the judging work of the Word of God. And I think ultimately we got to look at the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. And he has the name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is looking forward to the time when Jesus finally comes back and returns and comes back to set everything right and to judge the world. And that's what it says, that He's coming to judge and to make war. And what is, what is the name that He is called by? He is called by the Word of God. And out of His mouth we see, very familiar to the passage we're in this morning, this sharp sword by which He judges. All of it pointing to the fact that it is by the Word of God that we are judged. And that's the whole point that he's making, is that because we have to stand and give account to God, 
And the Word of God is going to pierce down into our very core of our being and completely expose us before God. And you know what we need to do? Here's, here's the only wise and practical thing to do is to let the Word of God do its piercing work in our life now. Let the Word of God do its exposing work in our hearts now. If we in our own volition allow the Word of God to sink into our heart and to teach us and to correct us, then we get the opportunity to participate in the divine nature. We get the opportunity to transform our thinking and renew our minds and be faithful to Christ and live out that salvation that He's provided for us. We need to have... All of that happened in our lives now. Not walk away from it. Not neglect it as we talked about back in chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. But allow it that penetrating, exposing work in our hearts to transform our lives. And to draw us closer, more faithful to our high priest that we're going to focus on next week.